The Operational Art with Laser Berman and Shmuel Shmuel. Good afternoon and welcome to the Dado Center's Operational Art Podcast, coming to you from the Homefront Command in Ramle, Israel. Whether you are cycling in Sicily, cracking corn in County Cork, or milking mice in Missouri, wherever you are, In this big, beautiful world of ours, we welcome you and we are thrilled to have you join us. My name is Laser Berman and I am joined by my co-host, the smartest man in national security today, the man with no last name, Mr. Shmuel Shmuel. Hey, happy to be here. So Shmuel, tell me, what are we doing here on the Operational Art Podcast? Well, in this podcast, we are going to talk about everything that has something to do with the national security. What specific issues are we going to touch on within that very broad field? Well, we're going to talk about stuff like war in general, air power, force generation, gray zones, counterinsurgency, whatever we find interesting. And I'm sure our listeners will find that interesting as well. And oh, yeah. They better. What, what kind of guests are we going to be bringing on to this program? Well, these guests are going to be Israeli scholars that are dealing with subjects. A lot of them are friends. They're very knowledgeable, and they're not usually heard abroad. A very important aspect of this podcast is to open up the world in general to some of the very relevant and very interesting conversations that are going on generally in Hebrew in the Israeli national security community. So this will give you some insight into what is going on there. Now, something that has to be stressed is that despite this being uh, the Dado Center podcast and is recorded in the Homefront Command, everything we say and everything the interviewees say is our own opinions. We're not representing the IDF, the Dado Center, the Israeli government, nobody else besides ourselves. And I also want to send a message out there to our friendly Iranian and Hezbollah intelligence officers. Everything that we say here will be unclassified, so you're welcome to keep listening but you're probably not going to get too much out of it for your reports. So what, what is this data center we work in? So the data center is a think tank. We belong to the IDF's general staff. We research the operational and strategic level of, levels of war. Uh, we work with senior IDF officers, so usually the colonel and general officers. We teach seminars. We conduct war games. We produce studies that inform their work, both on the force generation and force employment side. And on the unclassified side, Uh, we publish a scholarly journal called the Dado Center Journal, and we recommend that all our listeners go and check it out. You can find it on Ask Jeeves or on Alta Vista by putting in the Dado. Ask Jeeves? Yeah. Does whatever. it like, exist even? Google. Uh, go to Google. If you happen to have Google, you can use that too. Put in the Dado Center Journal. And we are translating new articles all the time from our Hebrew journal, so you can find us on Facebook at the Dado Center Journal. Check us out. Shmuel, I have to admit, I am very excited today. Do you know why? Why, why are you excited? Well, I have two reasons. First, I am excited about this very special inaugural episode of our podcast. And I think someday when we're rich and famous, we'll look back on this and we'll laugh. Or cry. Or cry. Probably cry. And second, I am excited about our guest, our very special guest, who we'll introduce in just one minute. But first, Shmuel, what are we going to be exploring today on this very special inaugural episode of The Operational Art? So today we're going to talk about gray zones, or the gray zones, which is uh, somewhat like the show, the, the, twilight, the zone. twilight Zone, which is describing the type of policies that are between war and peace when states want to achieve something but don't want to go uh, into total war uh, with each other. 
It's been uh, pinned on uh, Russia and China and uh, all sorts of other uh, bad actors. It's something that Western countries are finding uh, hard to deal with. Sounds like an interesting topic. And uh, we're going to get into this with our very good friend, one of the most original thinkers in Israel today, Dr. Ori Goldberg. Hi. Hey. So to introduce Ori, he's an expert on the intersection between religious faith and politics, something close to my heart. His specialty is in Shia Islam. His doctoral dissertation came out as the book Shi'i, Theology in Iran, The Challenge of Religious Experience. He has also written Thinking Shiite and Understanding Shiite Leadership. Now, if you have not yet bought these books, pause this podcast, stop whatever it is you're doing, run to your local bookstore or, or and pick Amazon. them up. As if your local bookstore would have them, but sure, by <laughs> all means. Uh, Ori has also worked at the Dado Center, and he has taught at the Israel National Defense College, IDC in Herzliya, Tel Aviv University, Shalem College, and more. And every time I see him, he has added another tattoo to his collection. So what's this newest tattoo that I see there on the arm? Well, the newest one has an elephant on a bed of roses, and I'm the elephant. That's what my kids have called me ever since they were born. And I don't know, once you get one tattoo, you find yourself getting others. It's addictive. I have not hit my first one yet, but... Who knows? Time will tell. All right. So, Ori, uh, we heard an introduction on the gray zone from Shmuel. How do you define what this phenomenon is that many in the United States and NATO are calling the gray zone? Well, I think the first thing we have to keep in mind when we're talking about gray zones is that they say as much about a phenomenon in the world as they say about the beholder. There's a lot that has to do with the need of military establishments to define you know, the world in which they operate, and particularly to instill order on the changes that that world experiences. And the world's been changing. It used to be wars were pretty straightforward business. Once they started, a lot of unexpected stuff happened. But generally, the paradigm of war used to be pretty stable. You would get two opposing sides. There would be a fairly clear definition of what it meant to be victorious and of what it meant to lose. Each side would go after the other, hoping to end up victorious and have the other side lose. The business of war was fairly out there, fairly well known. But the world's been changing. In fact, wars of the sort that I just described are becoming uh, much more rare if they actually take place at all. The most powerful countries in the world today, in a way, define their strength in direct relation to their ability to refrain from waging that sort of war. When you have armed conflicts today, you're fighting a broad variety of potential foes. Most of them are not at your level. If you're a state that has functioning, standing military force, you're fighting organizations, terrorist organizations, you're fighting uh, non-state elements that have a non-state agenda, you're doing all sorts of things. So the need to come up with a term that expresses the complexity of the scene is what gave birth to the gray zone just as much as actual changes to global environment gave birth to the gray zone. Now, you know, historians, and I'm amongst them, can take issue with the uh, assertion that uh, gray zones are a new thing or that uh, we're talking about something, or, or that most wars were a straightforward thing with two uh, defined sides and defined victories. But I think that the uh, discussion about whether or not a gray zone is a new term for a new phenomena is somewhat irrelevant. It's relevant, you know, academically, but it's not relevant for policy-wise. The question is, why do we need this new definition? Because there's a myriad of definitions, you know, low-intensity conflicts, hybrid warfare, which was 
big at a time. So why is the gray zone different from, for instance, hybrid warfare and any other one that describes the same phenomenon? So first, I agree completely. I don't think there, there is a lot that is clearly new in this whole business of fighting wars. So I agree with the historian's perspective that you present. I think you need the gray zone for two reasons. One, and that's why I started out by saying that the gray zone is as much a thing as it is in the eye of he who beholds it. It's that the world is confusing to the established order. It's changing. It's breaking down. The rules are not as effectively regulative as they once were. And it's no longer so clear when you're fighting a war, when you're at peace, when you're negotiating. It's no longer clear what counts as hostilities. It's no longer clear what counts as a legitimate political agenda or a legitimate course of military behavior. So the established order is confused. And one of the things the established order does when it's confused is come up with terms like gray zone that seemingly convey a sense not just of orderliness, but a sense of purpose. We know what we're doing because we know what we're up against. We used to be involved in hybrid warfare. Now we're up against a gray zone. Let's take that pair of terms, if you will, just to demonstrate what I'm saying. Hybrid warfare describes a condition or a state of consciousness with regard to war. What are we doing? We're practicing hybrid warfare. That's a little different from saying we're up against a gray zone because a gray zone conveys a different, a different logic or a different sensibility. A gray zone, when you tell a layperson that you're up against a gray zone, they will often think of an actual physical space. You know? This, a gray this zone. Space, right. It's a zone. By the way, and that says different things from saying we're engaged in hybrid warfare. When you're engaged in hybrid warfare, you ascribe some sort of parody to your opponent. You know, you're both engaged in hybrid warfare. You're doing this and they're doing that and you're sort of on the same level. And when you say gray zone, then it's a different sort of conflict that your lay listener imagines. It's about deploying your forces properly. It's about containing the region. It's about, I'm not saying that it's a successful definition. I'm saying that they say different things. And neither of them are particularly accurate. Or clear. Yes, they're never clear, but they're very useful to the people who coined them. They're useful to the people who coined them because they let those people produce documents and doctrines and strategies and policy papers. And get tenure. Sure, but that's the way of the world. Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it, it makes sense. And trying to disparage that is both unrealistic and non-conducive to, you know, more effective solutions. That's how people think gradually, and that's how establishments and systems think, through well-established or seemingly well-established terms. Gray zone is another one of those terms. So I presented a paper that I did with uh, Yaniv Friedman from the Dado Center at a NATO conference in Hungary, and I've seen this term surface in NATO discussions and discussions within the United States military. Why do you think that it's in these areas that this term is coming up? What challenge are they looking at that they're not sure how to deal with? I think the very initial challenge that requires the use of gray zone rather than hybrid warfare is that the conflicts that brought about hybrid warfare aren't going anywhere. You know, hybrid warfare was a way for these establishments to say, you know what, um, it's no longer a conflict. It's just the way things are. What are we doing? We're engaged in hybrid warfare. Can you define hybrid warfare for the listeners in your eyes? I can't give the exact definition. I was never big on, on stuff like this. But basically, hybrid warfare means it, it places an emphasis on how you go about uh, conducting a war. And hybrid warfare refers to uh, combinations of established, I'm, I'm pulling air quotes right now, 
established um, ordinary run-of-the-mill uses of military equipment and armaments alongside either civil disobedience or guerrilla warfare or the use of terrorism and the notion that there are no clear lines that distinguish between all of these things but that they're all used together the sort of a mixed bag uh, in order to achieve the goals that would traditionally have been achieved through the orthodox use of standing militaries. Again, the gray zones, they say something different. Gray zones saying we're up against a threat that we can define and identify. I think Israel and the United States and NATO, if you will, I think they would be more likely to use gray zones right now because the threat has evolved in a way. It's no longer this very sort of enlightened reflection that says, hey, it's, it's all about a change in the nature of warfare. We used to fight, uh, we used to conduct um, regular wars and we used to have clear, uh, a clear understanding of what it meant to fight a war. Now, any war we conduct, we do it using hybrid warfare. It's a state of mind. And that's a sort of a very kind of studious, uh, rational, laid-back reflection on the nature of things. And I think that came from this notion that, you know what, uh, we may not be able to win anymore because we're not fighting normal wars, but at least we know where we are. I think both Israel and the United States have realized that the wars that they're fighting are not going to go anywhere soon, that this sort of scholarly, rational reflection doesn't serve them very well in defining the nature of the threat and, and adapting on various levels to dealing with the threat. Gray zone instills, I think, a greater urgency into the whole endeavor. Why? Because a gray zone is easier to define, it's easier to relate to, it's no longer a matter for philosophizing, it's a matter for evaluating a threat properly, uh, setting up the uh, required uh, force capability, deploying the force, and doing away with the gray zone. Something that I've noticed in discussions around this gray zone issue is that we in the West try to create a clear line between war and peace, whereas adversaries like Russia, like China, don't have that clear definition, and they see everything on a spectrum of competition. Sometimes the competition is in more in the information realm, and sometimes it's more uh, overt and conventional. Do you think that's something that we have to change in the way we think about conflict and competition? Pretty sure you're right. It's, yes. <laughs> it seems like it seems like Russia and China don't just think so because they're culturally conditioned to think of war that way. I think uh yes, I think they're constantly engaged or see themselves as engaged uh, or or just being in the world in a state of of conflict or of competition. The notion of, you know, the everlasting peace, the peace that that will end all wars, the general spirit of international law from the end of the First World War onward that treats aggression as a crime, that uh, understands war as an anomaly, is very noble and it's very uplifting, but I think it hasn't proven to be remarkably effective. And it's true that there hasn't yet been a war like the Second World War. In that sense, it was effective. There's no longer a world war in uh, in that sense, but uh, the world is constantly embroiled. What is it embroiled in? As we talked about just now, a lot of the conversation about that conversation, it's like that very well-known Raymond Carver short story title, what we talk about when we talk of love. It's all all a conversation of what we talk about when we talk of war, when we talk of peace. 
Uh, it worked once or twice very effectively. And ever since then, we've been talking about what we talk about when we talk of war and peace rather than talk about war and peace. This conversation is is not a bad one because it is in many ways a sign of success. You know, the, the very reason that we're able to have this conversation indicates that more or less well, the West has done what it has set out to do. But that understanding is also showing signs of uh, fraying at the edges, if you will. Russia and China seem to be on top of their game. And at the very least, they seem to have a clear game plan or an understanding of what they want. And maybe that's the major difference. Maybe it's not so much whether we uh, hold true to notions of clearly defined war and peace as much as it is, do we have a notion of what it is we want, ultimately, where we see ourselves in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? Russia and China seem to. I would think Russia, or at least Russia's ruler, would pride himself on being able to stay a move or two ahead of the general game. Yeah. You know, it's not, not a strategic vision like China, possibly, but uh, still an understanding that the game is played on many levels uh, um, simultaneously and that success at one level immediately resonates on other levels. It's that a, may be a thing that the West is having difficulty understanding. It's like the saying goes, the West play checkers, the Russian play chess, and the Chinese play Go. Now, I think the West has tried to lawyer war, and it's the entire thing of the rules-based order. And a clear war on peace is, is trying to lawyer war. You can do this, and then you can do that. Now, the question is, if you take the gray zone or hybrid warfare, and you need to now consult like a prime minister or a president, how do you use it to improve his decision-making, improve his understanding of the topic? That's a really good question. And I, I, I feel an urge to answer not as a, a quote-unquote expert, but actually as a, as a layperson. Because even when I worked at the Dado Center, I was always the least knowledgeable in the room about military history and strategy and stuff like that. You were the laser Berman of the <laughs> Dado Center. <laughs> no, I think, I think you've got it down much more than I, than I used to. Actually, the, this whole terminology escalation, to me, it, you, it often sounded like a cop-out. You know, like, like, like a strategy that was basically meant to gradually ease the political decision maker into accepting that the military person opposite him who was presenting the strategic situation actually knows everything that needs to be done and just needs to be given the authority to do it. Sometimes it sounds like that. I think it can also be helpful because I think the confusion of which we spoke on the part of the military professionals often uh, exists at much greater levels, you know, at the level of political decision-making. You know, people like to um, scoff President Trump's uh, meager understanding of world affairs. But in many ways, I think he is just very upfront about something that would probably be characteristic of other senior leaders all over the world. The world's become a confusing place, and probably even more than that, the notion and to survive effectively in the world, you need to have a strategic vision that is clear, that has stated goals, uh, the success of which can be measured. Uh, you know, it's got benchmarks. It's got fail-safes. It updates every few years. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure the world is, is all that conducive to, that, to this sort of worldview. And, and Trump's uh, confusion and even disdain towards people who advocate for this, because Basically, I mean, you could look at what Trump's doing and say, 
he's he's protecting America is what it is. You know, it's the lives of American citizens that count first, not anything other than that. That's not all that far-fetched. It's not all that stupid if you think about what a difficult place the world is. And if you think about how difficult it is to be those tenure-seeking academics or uh, rank-seeking military professionals you described before who need to produce this stuff on a regular basis. It's hard. So gray zones are great. I want to ask you something that we've talked about in the past. Um, usually when people are talking about this gray zone idea or competition in general, they're focusing on specific steps that are taken, whether in the information realm, cyber, uh, clear military action. There's the bigger idea of competing narratives. And the gray zone actor who's challenging the stronger power is trying to undermine the narrative of the West or the United States and is trying to push his narrative either locally or around the world. I'd like to hear your thoughts on how the narrative competition plays into this uh, modern-day competition between states. Okay, so I want to bring another um, big concept into our discussion, and that's the notion of, of the political, which is a wise-ass scholarly way of you know referring to politics as a kind of existential condition. The notion of the political or the, the, the uh, political existence is looking at the world through the lens of politics, not just institutional or establishment politics, but understanding that the world moves according to political logic or political logics. And this whole battle of narratives thing, when you don't relate it to the political, it sounds like the world of warfare has shifted from using tanks to employing complicated mind games, right? Talk about the battle of narratives. What you're saying is everybody tells their story and he wins who is able to convince more people that his story is true, whereas the other story is false. How do you do that? Through techniques of persuasion and manipulation and information warfare and so on. So you think about that and it sounds devious, right? The battle of narratives. But it's also the way politics is conducted. You know, that when political parties are competing in, a, in general election, they sell narratives too. Right? That's the heart and soul of the uh, liberal democratic political process. And that's also difficult, I think, for defense establishments. The understanding that the one line that is most significantly being blurred and blurred out of existence is the line that separates military from politics. Right? Because the gray zone battles are political battles. You know, they're not, it's not about deviousness and it's not about ruthless efficiency, how you harness the consciousness of your enemy, its civilians, its leaders, or whatever. It's not about influence, again, in this devious sense where we're using dark means through which to exercise this influence. It's about politics. There is hardly, you know, there, there, there are real bad guys out there. There are people who would stop at nothing to achieve their goals. There are people who break the rules intentionally, just not just to show their contempt for the rules, but in order to give credibility to a new set of rules. All that's true. There's, there, there's a lot of viciousness out there. But there are also a lot of gray zones, a lot of hybrid actors, a lot of call them what you will, that are realizing that the one distinction that the West imposed on them that is truly fallacious is the one between uh, military affairs and political affairs. It, that doesn't exist. I'll just quote the Ayatollah Khomeini, Iran's first supreme leader and leader of the revolution, one of my favorite quotes, on page two of, of his famous book, Islamic Government, where he claims the right to rule for the, the Shia cleric. 
He says the biggest lie the West has ever sold you is that there's a separation of religion and state. Once you even believe that, you're Western stooges. The same thing, I think, in paraphrase, goes for this distinction between military and politics. There are a lot of people in non-Western contexts that are beginning to realize that the West's insistence on military affairs being professional or, or motivated by, you know, security considerations, that there's nothing that is apolitical. It's all political. The separation of church and state and the separation between politics and the military are fundamental truths that in, in the United States understanding about what a real democracy is and, and much of Europe as well. I think that's one of the reasons why this is so alarming and challenging. Um, I, I agree. But yeah, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a show. It's like, you know, Eisenhower warned about uh, industrial, military-industrial complex, and some say it was supposed to be military-industrial-congressional complex. The military was always involved in politics. Uh, no, but it's true that there were jurisdiction, jurisdictional lines set, and they were set with a true purpose and for good reason. I'm not, I'm not refuting the validity of this separation. I'm saying that maybe if we go back to the American Declaration of Independence, Maybe these truths are no longer all that self-evident. Mm-hmm. Maybe the West needs to put in some time in both affirming and explaining these truths to itself. You know, figuring out what it is you believe and why you believe it. And that's particularly true today where a lot of the gray zones and the hybrid actors and the bad guys, one of their most defining traits is that they're believers. You know, they have a creed. They know what they stand for. And they look at the West, and as far as they're concerned, the West's main weakness is that it doesn't. How do you see the gray zone, besides what you mentioned before, uh, is applied to the Muslims, the Shiite, the Sunnis? I can differentiate between the Shi'i world and the Sunni world in that respect. The Shi'i world is, is your classic gray zone. There's nothing that's particularly, you know, written in stone in the Shi'i world. It's all, almost all of it is contextual. Remarkably fluid, very pragmatic, very practical, and very coalition-oriented. It's always about bringing together various parties who come together through agreement on certain issues, but not on others. That's a hallmark of Iranian Shi'i revolutionary politics, and I think they've exported that model fairly successfully. It's not, of course, to say they're exporting the revolution, but this worldview seems to be operating very effectively Iraq's Shi'i prime minister, who is by no means a great supporter or fan of Iran, seems to be doing the same thing, playing all ends against the middle where he's standing, Saudi Arabia, Iran, whoever it takes, and he seems to be succeeding. The Sunni world, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a major rift there. There's, there's a, an existential conflict between those who appreciate a religious identity for its ability to create a sense of coherence and belonging at a communal and national level, but see no need to devote themselves to that, you know, religion in a literal sense. And those who do think that religion in a literal sense is the recipe for a perfect life and must be imposed forcefully if need be. The Sunni world is, is as of now, somewhat undecided. Officially, at the level of senior state leaderships, of course, everybody is opposed to the radical version of Islam. That's not necessarily true, and even if it is true, for the most part, the idea that Islam is a radical, critical ideology is, is has definitely taken root. You don't need a lot of supporters for that idea to make it effective. I don't know, for example, I mean, recently we heard that the Saudi crown prince has said that he's going to reform Islam, reform Saudi Islam. He's going to remove clerics that are 
insisting on a tough conservative vision that he speaks for the young people of Saudi Arabia who don't want an entire life of stifling under you know the iron fist of those clerics. That's all well and good, but he is mostly talk to talk and not even that to a great extent. He, ha- he is far, far, far from really reforming the system. I don't know if the system can be reformed, but definitely the Sunni world is in a pickle. So thank you. Uh, we have reached the my favorite part of the podcast, where every week we will be sampling another Israeli alcoholic beverage. Now, this week, we meant to be drinking an Israeli whiskey, but my boss at the Dado Center took my bottle. So hopefully we'll get that bottle back for ne- for the next episode. But this week, Shmuel was kind enough to bring us. What did you bring us? Well, I brought what I think is uh, one of the best Israeli beers that are from a boutique brewery. It's called Malka Beer. It's uh, manufactured in uh, Yechiam, where they do both uh, beer and meat, which is awesome. And they have a medieval Muslim fortress over there and a kibbutz, which is all of it together. So go visit it if you're in Israel. And they brought a pale ale and a blonde ale. I think they also have a stout or a porter, one of these uh, more uh, darker beers. All right. L'chaim. The Operational Art with Laser Berman and Shmuel Shmuel. Well, this is our show for today. We would like to thank the Homefront Command for letting us record in their very well-equipped studio. Thank you. To Major Ben Saadi, the commander of the studio. You can find me on Twitter at Sam Devaham. You can find Laser on Facebook at Laser Berman. Laser Berman. Please tell your friends about this podcast if you like it. Visit the Dado Center website and like it. on Facebook. And if you like our show, don't forget to rate it in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you get your pod. See you next time.